Father, your people gather this morning waiting to hear a word from you. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and speak your word to us in power today. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, when I was in college, two of my friends and I decided that we'd use a spring break to go hike part of the Appalachian Trail in uh, Virginia, part of the Blue Ridge Mountains there. Um, the trip started to come together when uh, two of us were talking about our experiences backpacking in, in Colorado and Alaska, and, and we were talking about um, how much we missed that. And so we, we got the idea that maybe we could you know, go somewhere closer, go somewhere like the Appalachian Trail and go backpacking there. And as, was, as we were talking about um, how much we enjoyed backpacking and hiking and being in nature, uh, a third friend grew interested. He, he heard you know, nature, he heard uh, time with friends, and he thought, okay, this would be a, a really fun thing. And so he very quickly uh, signed on and joined us. So we uh, gathered all of our maps, got all the material we needed, uh, found a ride out to Virginia for spring break, and, and we got all the plans set, got our bags packed, and and drove all the way across from Chicago to, um, to Virginia. And finally, we stepped out of the car, strapped on our backpacks, and took our first steps on the Appalachian Trail. We were brimming with optimism as we started off. Now, my friend Ryan is from Colorado. He's done a fair amount of backpacking. I'm from Alaska. I've done a fair amount of backpacking. But the third friend was not so fortunate. He'd never been backpacking before, and so he didn't really know what to expect. Nonetheless, it started off pretty well. I imagine from, from his mindset, you know, you start off and you're thinking, this is great. You know, we, we left the suburbs, we left Chicagoland, and we're out in nature now. We get to just spend seven days, the three of us, enjoying God's creation, having nice, deep uh, theological and philosophical discussions, and, and this is going to be a great time. But it doesn't take too long before that 45-pound pack on your back starts to feel like 45 pounds, and then it starts to feel like, 50 pounds and and 60 pounds, and it feels like an unbearable weight by the time you're a couple hours in. And then you kind of get to the first hill, and you start going up that hill, and you think, man, this is a little more strenuous than I was picturing. I mean, the Appalachian Mountains are not tall mountains, but they still have some vertical rise, and you're thinking, man, this is, I'm glad we're not in Colorado or Alaska. I'm glad we're in in the kind of small hills of of, uh, eastern U.S. But finally, we got to the point where we stopped and we had lunch. I imagine at this point my friend is thinking, okay, this is more what I'm talking about. We're, we're sitting here together, the three of us, relaxing, no heavy weight on my back, and we're, we're eating lunch. You know, this is what I was talking about, enjoying creation, enjoying nature. But then, of course, lunch break comes to an end, and you've got to put that heavy pack back on your shoulders. And by this point, it's a little bit sore because you weren't really used to having those straps on your waist and on your shoulders. And you think, okay, the first couple steps are a little bit sore because your legs aren't used to carrying that weight. And, and then you have the prospect of spending miles and miles continuing on before you get to stop for the night. And you picture the hours that you're going to be on the trail here, the hours that this weight is going to be dragging down, dragging you down toward the earth. And, and anyway, you can imagine that this friend was experiencing uh, a little bit of uh, displeasure at, at joining us on this trip. But finally, we got to our campsite for the night, and he was able to take the pack off. And I, I can just imagine the, the relief that he had. Finally, that burden is gone. He, he can just walk around normally and Okay, we can relax. But what he didn't realize is that when you're backpacking and you get to your campsite for the night, it's not yet time to relax. There's still a lot of work to be done. 
I mean, someone has to go filter water, go down to a creek and use the pump and, and fill up a, a bucket of water and so you can do cooking and cleaning and these things. And someone else has to set up the tent and get the sleeping bags out. And, and someone has to cook the food and get all that ready. And then after you finally sit down to eat food, you finish that. And then you've got to clean up the food. You've got to go find a place to hang the food up in a tree so animals don't get to it. And so it's just work after work after work. He was expecting us to get to the campsite and just kind of relax, you know, maybe read a book, kick up your feet, and then you know, go to bed eventually. But finally, we got to the point where we could go to sleep. So he gets in, his, gets in the tent, reads his book, exhausted, totally exhausted, reads his book for a few minutes, puts it down, go to, goes to sleep. But then you wake up the next morning. This is a six-night trip. So he's got the prospect of the same process happening every single day. So he gets up in the morning the next day, and, and the same things have to happen. You've got to heat up water for your oatmeal and for your cocoa, for your tea, whatever it is. And then you've got to take down the tent. You've got to put the packs away. You've got to put the, the sleeping bags away, pack everything down, get the food out of the tree, clean everything up again. And finally, when you're done, you've got three 45-pound packs again. And you've got to put that pack on again. When you really don't want to now, now it really hurts your shoulders by the time you're putting it on this time. It really hurts your hips, and, and your legs really don't want to move forward. You can imagine for someone who is expecting a leisurely hike through the woods and some nice time of intimacy with nature and, and great conversations with friends. I mean, this was starting to look like a death march. Seven days of hiking with a 45-pound pack on your back, walking through what now seemed like the wilderness to him before he could finally sit in a car again and relax. My friend Ryan and I realized far too late that we had not prepared our friend adequately for the trip. He had loved the idea of spending time in nature. He loved the idea of spending time with good friends, but we hadn't adequately prepared him for the, the somewhat harsh realities of what backpacking can be, the amount of work that goes into a trip like that. Um, his expectations didn't align with reality. Now, I will say that after we realized that he had kind of, kind of gone into total despair by the third day, we did, the fourth day was actually his birthday. So you can imagine the poor kid. I mean, he, he totally forgot that it was his birthday. But so we, we, we had mercy on him, and we actually had, had packed some special root beer for him and a, a special cake and had brought those. So by the fourth day, when we saw how despondent he was, we actually stopped early, changed the whole uh, format of the trip, and ended up taking the more leisurely pace. We, we made it up to him in the end, but, but we realized that there's something really important about expectations, when you expect a certain thing and things don't go according to that expectation, you're going to end up in despair. You're going to be pretty unhappy with the situation. And this can happen with the Christian life too. I mean, Paul has been telling us all the, the beautiful things of the gospel. The, the core of the gospel, these first four chapters of Romans, is that you used to be a sinner. You used to be far away from God. You deserved God's wrath. You deserved to spend eternity distanced from God in hell. And yet, God sent his son into that situation to change the reality for you. So no longer are you a sinner distanced from God, deserving his wrath. Now you have been reconciled to him through his son. And the only thing you do to accept that is to put your total trust in him. That righteousness, that restored relationship rests on faith in Jesus. So Paul is talking about all these blessings of, of the gospel. And, and you think, of course, I'm going to sign up for that. Of course, that is what I need to do. I need to put my faith in Jesus. I want to experience those blessings. But Paul wants Christians 
to not get the wrong expectations here. He wants to be clear about what the reality of the gospel really is. And so here he's going to, as we move to chapter 5, he's going to prepare Christians better than we prepared our our friend to go backpacking. He's, He's going to prepare us for what the gospel is really promising. We need to be very clear about what the gospel is promising or we can very quickly become discouraged. Paul has established already that the gospel makes us right with God by faith. That's the good news. And, and now Paul's going to show us what we can expect when we receive the gospel. So we're in Romans chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I invite you to turn there if you haven't done that yet. This is found on page 1116 of the Pew Bibles. And we're kind of turning a, a little bit of a leaf in the book of Romans here. Paul's been talking about the gospel, talking about justification by faith, and now he's talking about how that justification plays out into the life of the Christian. So we're kind of transitioning a little bit. And if you're an astute observer of the PowerPoint slides, you'll realize that I kind of subtly tweaked the background here so you have a little visual cue of what that uh, looks like. So Paul is telling us what we can expect from the gospel. He's going to explain that we have two kind of great boasts in the gospel. The gospel gives us two great boasts. The first one is the kind of thing that we want to hear. Our first boast is we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Look at the first two verses here. This is what is true because of the gospel. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul's saying to receive the gospel is to have access to God's grace. And again, this reminds us that this isn't about what we have done. This isn't about righteous things that we have sort of uh, attained on our own. This is not a righteousness that is based on our merit. No, this is we are standing in grace. This is totally the result of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Our status, our uh, position being in the sphere blessing of God's grace is wholly reliant upon the work of Jesus. And because of that, because we stand in God's grace, we have peace with God. That's the, this transformation of the gospel. We were sinners and now we are reconciled to God. We now have peace with God. You used to be God's enemy. You used to be far away from God. You used to be in rebellion against him and you deserve wrath. But that has changed now. We used to be estranged from him, but now that relationship has been reconciled. We tore the relationship apart, but God has worked in Christ to restore that relationship again. That means that our relationship with God is now one of peace, no longer one of hostility. So we are standing in God's grace. We have peace with God. And those two things point to this third thing, the boast that Paul says we have. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, that's a kind of a tricky expression. What is the, the hope of the glory of God? If we're going to understand that, a couple passages in Romans earlier will help us understand what Paul is talking about. Back in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul is talking about the feudal person, and he makes reference to the glory of God. Listen to those verses. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So the glory of God is what humans have sort of cast off. The glory of God is the thing that we have rejected in our futility. 
summarizing the position of the, the sinner in Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, it's that same phrase. The glory of God is what we were designed for. The glory of God is what we were supposed to be, uh, supposed to be the highest good for us. And yet sinful humans have turned away from God's glory. That's what we have rejected and cast aside. The beginning of the Bible says that, that humans were created in God's image. We were meant to reflect God's glory. But the Bible also says that humans were not content with this. And we rebelled against God. And in our rebellion against God, we have turned away from God's glory. We have sinned and fall short of that glory. That is no longer who we are. That's no longer our highest good. God intended for us to to share in his glory, to reflect his glory. And Paul is saying that our justification by grace puts us back in line with God's intention. The glory of God then is our great boast again. When we were sinners, it was the thing that we rejected. We rejected the glory of God. We fell short of that glory. But now, being justified, that, again, is our great boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Paul doesn't exactly work out what this means. We don't know the the particulars of what it means to to boast in the glory of God. What is the hope of the glory of God? We, We don't know exactly what that means. Paul doesn't fill out that picture for us. But at the same time, it it lifts our expectation. It's an incredible hint at at a reality that we can't fully understand right now. These aren't ordinary blessings that Paul is talking about here. And too often our eyes are focused on the here and now, the things that we we see around ourselves and the kind of sort of surface-level blessings of the material world. But Paul is lifting our eyes above what is possible from human perception. He's, he's lifting our expectation of what can be true. Saying, you have access to God's grace through Jesus. You have peace with God through Jesus. Your boast is a boast that you could never have imagined. Your boast is in the hope of the glory of God. I, mean, I imagine it must be very hard for Paul to get across what he's trying to say here. Think about the difficulty of that. I I picture this being like the task of trying to tell a young kid who who grew up in the Midwest and has never seen anything outside the Midwest what a a mountain really is. I mean, you can explain things to them and you can even show them pictures, but until they've been there and seen them, they can't grasp what the immensity of the thing really is. I think we're in that same position here. Paul can tell us about the the hope of the glory of God, but, but I think... We can't fully grasp what that is. We can't grasp the immensity of what he's saying. This is something beyond our imagination. But I think that's okay. We don't need to know the whole reality at this point. Paul has, what Paul has been saying is enough for us. Paul's been saying we are reconciled to God. We have a restored relationship. We now have peace with God instead of hostility. We have access to God's grace. We have access to the grace of the creative God, the God who made the whole cosmos. We are in his grace. We are reconciled to him. And so that truth is enough then. And then our task is to cultivate a sense of awe and wonder about what this hope of the glory of God really means. Again, we don't need to know the details, but our our expectation is raised from the sort of surface level we're at to a a higher level where our eyes are are elevated beyond the here and now to something truly amazing. 
But I, want, I don't want to give the wrong impression and suggest that that's just something kind of far off in the future. What Paul is saying is true today, that the blessings of the gospel are truths that are blessings today. I mean, Paul is saying that now, right now, you have peace with God. You were an enemy, but now, in Christ, you are God's friend. Now, today, you have access to God's grace. And even though you might not know what the glory of God looks like in its full sense, you have that hope. You can boast in that hope. That hope is secure and solid. I mean, those are the blessings that the gospel gives. The great boast of the gospel is a boast in God. It's a boast in the hope of the glory of God. And that's something far beyond what we could have imagined. But I do want to give a caution here in the form of a question. Look at these first two verses again. Does Paul say anything about material prosperity here? Does Paul say anything about this being an easy life? I think we can very quickly get into trouble by thinking about gospel hope and and about the, the boast of the gospel, and we too quickly connect that to material things. It's a natural connection for us because this is the world we live in. These are the things we see with our eyes. These are the concerns that we have. But if we connect the blessings of the gospel to specifically to material goods, then we have misheard what Paul is saying. And the second boast that Paul gives us very quickly stops that. We boast in the hope of the glory of God and we boast in suffering. Because suffering produces hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. When we think of what it means to be blessed by God, we too often think in material terms. This is about having a, a more pleasant life now. But Paul is showing us that the gospel has to reshape that expectation. It has to reshape how we think about God's blessing. It reshapes what our hope looks like. Hope that relies on on everything sort of fitting together now, everything being happy and enjoyable and, and pleasant, that kind of hope fails the test of reality. My life doesn't look like that. Your life doesn't look like that. So you might think that that's what you want. You might think that you want a, a hope that talks about prosperity today. But that's going to fail the test of reality. That's a worthless hope because it it simply is not true. It's proven false by your life. It's proven false by my life. Christian hope is more substantial hope. It's deeper hope than that. It recognizes that the blessings of the gospel, the, the things that Paul has been talking about in the first two verses here, those blessings are sure even in the face of suffering, even in the face of oppression. The gospel has to change our perspective so that nothing, even oppression, affliction, suffering, persecution, nothing can shape the boast of the gospel. Nothing can shape that gospel hope. And even more than that, the gospel so changes our perspective that we can even see the positive purpose in suffering. Paul says we boast in suffering. Right? I doubt very much that many of us would ever 
boast in what we have suffered. This is not the kind of thing that we want to talk about because, you know, you never know. God might give you more suffering if you're going to boast in suffering. But Paul's saying here that suffering can work out for our good. Look at the, the chain he's talking about here. Suffering produces perseverance. It produces fortitude or endurance. It, it kind of tests the veracity of your faith. In other words, it increases your patience. It increases your ability to withstand suffering, more suffering. So suffering helps you suffer well. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces proven character. I mean, this proves the truth of who you are. If you haven't suffered, you haven't been tested. You don't know who you really are. You find out who you really are in the face of suffering, in the face of trial. You find out what your hope is really in. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And so now we've come full circle. This started with a boast in the hope of the glory of God, the gospel hope that we have. And suffering, we see, actually increases that hope. Suffering builds character. Character produces increasing hope. D.A. Carson tells the story of a, a woman who came up to a pastor after a church service, and, and she was talking about all the, the difficult circumstances of her life, and, and she asked the pastor, you know, please pray that God would give me patience. I really need patience right now. Please pray for me. And the pastor looked at her and said, okay, I will pray that God is going to give you a whole bunch of trouble. And the woman looks at him and said, no, that's not what I'm asking for. I, I have lots of trouble. I don't need more trouble. And she's pretty angry, understandably. I don't need trouble. I need patience. And the pastor said, well, yes, you do need patience. And God typically uses means. See, you and I want to circumvent the process. We want the end result. We want the patience. We want the proven character. We want that increasing hope without having to go through the process it takes to get there, the process of growth. But God uses means. God uses suffering and difficult circumstances to build our faith and to refine our hope after the gospel itself, to remove the sort of dross, the sort of things that we attach to that gospel hope, the peripheral things to make sure our hope is actually gospel hope. We boast in suffering because we recognize that this is the process that God has used to grow us into mature Christians. We boast in suffering because this is increasing our gospel hope. It's making sure that our hope is actually in the gospel. Our hope is actually in the glory of God and not the peripheral, prosperity, blessings that we typically think of when we think of what it means to be blessed. There was a man who had everything. He had a, a wife, he had kids, he had a beautiful house. His business was booming, booming so much that he had to have people watch over his business. And, and he got really good people to watch over the business, and it grew and grew and grew. And his family grew too. You looked at that man and you thought, that is a man who is blessed by God. There's no question about it. He is blessed by God. And the man felt this too. He felt blessed by God and he gave God praise. He loved God with all his heart. But then he, his world started to fall apart. His business failed. His children were involved in an accident. He lost his whole family. 
He lost his house. Eventually, his wife told him, you might as well just curse God and die. Your life is done. God's hand is against you. But you think about the the kind of things that that the gospel is promising. You you look back at verses 1 and 2. Has that man lost his hope if his hope is shaped by the gospel? He has lost everything. Tremendous pain, tremendous agony. But has he lost his substantial hope? This is the story of Job. Job is able to say, God gave me everything. And now God has taken away everything. And yes, Job agonizes over this. He questions why this is happening to him. But he refuses to curse God but he's, because he recognizes that it, it is God himself that Job wants. The hope of the righteous person is in God himself. It's not in the peripheral blessings that we sometimes think are attached to the Christian life. Because Job's trust was in the right thing, his hope was unshaken even in the midst of questioning. Hope that is shaped by the gospel never disappoints, even in the face of suffering. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Gospel-shaped hope will never disappoint. It is sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours out the truth into our lives that God loves us. And that testimony is what builds our hope. That testimony, the Holy Spirit, that God loves us, confirms the promise that God made. It makes that boast of the gospel all the more certain. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Yes, we even boast in the midst of suffering because we know that God loves us and that he is faithful to his promise. This is the lesson. Being a Christian doesn't guarantee an easy, carefree life. It doesn't mean that everything is suddenly going to turn up your way. The gospel of prosperity, this idea that when you become a Christian, you'll get a better job and more obedient children and a bigger house and a nicer car. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those expectations, those hopes are not shaped by the gospel. Those hopes are shaped by the American dream. They are shaped by materialism. If you think the Christian hope is for a more pleasant existence today, you are going to be disappointed. Life simply is not like that. Our hope must be shaped by the gospel if it is to be secure hope. And that might sound kind of disappointing at first glance because we do like the blessings of a a nice lifestyle. We might want to prosper here. We might want to enjoy these things. But really, this is the only kind of hope that has any substance. If, if hope is based on that idea of prosperity, then, then you know it's not true. If Paul were saying, you will prosper in everything you do in the sense of material wealth and these kind of things, then you know that that's not true because that has not been your experience. In truth, the only hope that will withstand the trials of life is hope that is actually shaped by the promises of God. Hope that is actually shaped by the gospel. 
Those who hear the gospel and who put their faith in Jesus are truly blessed. Blessed far deeper than any material prosperity. I mean, this is the truth. If God has justified you, you have peace with God. You are reconciled to the loving, gracious God who created the universe. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have access to God's grace. You have deserved nothing, and yet you have been given everything. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have the greatest boast imaginable. You boast in the hope of the glory of God. Your hope is in God's design for you. Gospel-shaped hope is hope that can boast in the glory of God and hope that can boast even in the face of suffering because it is secure. If you want the kind of hope that can withstand the realities of life, your hope must be shaped by the gospel. And when that's true, it is secure. Hope that is shaped by the gospel will never disappoint. I don't have to tell you that your world isn't perfect. You know that. Every one of us is fighting a great battle. You know your world is not perfect. You need a hope that is secure, not a a hope that's sort of a, a fantasy somewhere that's not connected to reality at all. You need a hope that's not going to disappoint you, an unshakable faith that you know is secure. The gospel is that message. When you put your faith in Jesus, God transforms your picture of hope. He transforms your expectation. Your boast is not in your own ability. Your boast isn't in what you can attain here, what you can see with your eyes. Your boast is now the great hope. Your boast is the hope of the glory of God. Your boast is in what you were made to hope for. And when that is your hope, then you can boast even in the face of suffering because you know that you will not be disappointed. If your hope is truly shaped by the gospel, you will never be disappointed. Please pray with me. God, we are tempted to put our hope in so many different things. And yet there is only the one hope. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would confirm the truth in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would speak the truth of your love to us so that we may know beyond any doubt that your plan for us is good, that your plan for us is the only secure and solid hope that we can have in our life. I pray that you would speak the truth of your gospel into our hearts so that we will not be shaken. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.